That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. Fighting for the gay disco. What, are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains. And the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's, what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake him up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello. This is E. Michael Jones, live, Friday afternoon. Rainy day in March, and the conventional narrative keeps unraveling. As we speak, last week we talked about uh, Josh Hawley interrogating Merrick Garland uh, about how he didn't take it far enough, uh, in my opinion, but uh, whether he took it far enough, the narrative start continued anyway. So... Part of the problem here uh, for Merrick Garland is that uh, the FBI was using the Southern Poverty Law Center as a source for its intel. Uh, memo released in Richmond uh, targeted conservative Catholics or Latin Mass Catholics or something like that as domestic terrorists and urged the FBI to go uh, dig up information on them so that they should pro could prosecute them. At this point, uh, Josh Hawley should have said, well, what's your motivation, uh, Mr. Garland? 
uh, what if, first of all, what's your position on abortion? Uh, do you believe that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value? Are you Jewish? Does this fact uh, make it impossible for you to apply the law even-handedly, which is what you've been hired to do? Didn't go that way. Uh, I guess the world isn't ready for the full explanation of abortion as basically a Catholic Jewish value, which has nothing to do with race. Uh, but uh, the story continued because God's in charge of the narrative, no matter what the rich and powerful think. And so a few days later, after Garland is embarrassed by uh, his uh, use of the SPLC as a, a reliable source for the FBI, it turns out that uh, a lawyer for the Southern Poverty Law Center got arrested in Atlanta, except that he wasn't uh, acting as a lawyer for the Southern Poverty Law Center. He was acting as a terrorist, an Antifa terrorist, after that group attacked uh, the construction site for Cop City, uh, a new police facility in Atlanta. He's arrested, and suddenly it comes out he's a lawyer for the SPLC. And then it suddenly comes out that the SPLC is a hotbed for Antifa activity. So if you want to do the Venn diagram, there is the Antifa, there is the SPLC, and you put them together, there's a significant amount of overlap there which makes uh, the SPLC a domestic terrorist organization because of its participation in Antifa. Now, this is a story that should have been pursued. Josh Hawley should have hauled Merrick Garland back into the Senate chambers and asked him uh, if the FBI is in bed with Antifa. Because it turns out that the FBI is in bed with the SPLC and the SPLC is in bed with Antifa. This is the classic guilt by association that Jews use against anybody that they don't like. Okay, but suddenly when the Jew is in charge of the Justice Department, uh, we're not allowed to use this type of thing. So where was, where was uh, Merrick Garland? Well, he was in the Ukraine. Oh, wait a minute. Why is Merrick Garland, who is the attorney general in the Ukraine? What does, is, he's not the secretary of state. We have another Jew who's secretary of state. He's the one who should be going to the Ukraine. Uh, he should, he's the one who should be uh, trying to broker a peace there instead of stoke more war. But that's another story. So why is Merrick Garland in the Ukraine? Well, he's going to resurrect the Nuremberg War Crimes, War Crimes Tribunal. This was the tribunal that tried Nazi criminals after World War II. It was a Jewish operation. 80% of the lawyers were Jewish. Uh, what happened over this period of time, even the judge in charge of it, Judge Jackson, started to see the long arm of Jewish vengeance uh, in uh, this uh, trial, uh, a notoriously unfair trial that led some people who were participating in it to say that they hope America never loses a war because America has set the precedent for a kangaroo court uh, to take care of people that they don't like while at the same time uh, having the, the, uh, the aura, or the false aura of some type of legal proceedings. This... Uh, same SPLC that Merrick Garland uh, got caught uh, being involved in uh, launched an attack on Gemma O'Doherty in Ireland 
at around the same time. No, this is early. This was months earlier. Uh, uh, the, the Irish Times used the Southern Poverty Law Center as a source for attacking Gemma O'Doherty. No, no one in Ireland, I would wager, I don't, Gemma O'Doherty included, knew who the SPLC was, knew who Heidi Byrick was, who was the SPLC lady who launched the attack on me and now was being cited in the attack on Gemma. Nobody knew who they were, but now they do. Now they do because the Irish Times made a fool out of itself by taking this group seriously as a source, as a source, a journalistic source, when it was nothing but a hate group uh, itself who is in the business of identifying other people that they don't like as hate groups. This uh, is another example of the narrative unraveling here. We have even more example an even more recent example with uh, we uh, with the announcement by the New York Times uh, that the Ukraine was responsible for blowing up the pipeline now uh, Seymour Hirsch was given uh, uh, somebody called him up and, and explained this to him and he is now recorded uh, on Twitter, posted a Twitter link in which he, his first reaction is to burst out laughing. What? That can't be true. They can't be that stupid. Are they that stupid? Uh, what do I care? I'm going to go look at the New York Times now. Oh, my God. Intelligence suggests Ukrainian... <laughs> Oh my God! Oh my God! Okay, no, I haven't seen it. No, I, I, I can't comment on that stuff. What do I know? I've written a couple of other things about it. I'm going to write something next week again about it, and that's the way I do it. What? Now, now wait. It can't be true. This let let let, let me remind everyone uh, who this guy is. This guy is a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who has been doing this. Uh, ever since the Vietnam War, exposing the My Lai massacre in the Vietnam War. Now, when he was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, the first place that would publish him would be the New York Times. Well, where else? I mean, if this is the top journalist. You got the flagship of American journalism. So naturally, they're going to be published together. Now you have the complete unraveling of what was an effective way of keeping this narrative going. The American narrative, the conventional narrative, the one that was created by Time Magazine after, uh, after uh, the, the editor of Time Magazine, the publisher, Harry Luce, read uh, the book on propaganda by Walter Lippmann, how you need some type of propaganda ministry to keep the unruly democracy under control. You need to portray a narrative. Everyone has to accept it. That's what it was like uh, when I was a boy and Time Magazine would arrive at the doorstep and you pick it up and you start reading Time Magazine to figure out what was going on. That's what it was like. It was a very effective uh, narrative producing machine. And they, uh, just as they blew up the pipeline, they blew up their own narrative. So now you've got Seymour Hirsch publishing on Substack. That's an internet outlet 
He's not on the New York Times. He used to, this would have been a front page story in the New York Times before, but that's now it's, it's obvious that the New York Times as the flagship of the mainstream media is nothing but a propaganda outlet for the CIA. This, this story of the Ukraine uh, blowing up the pipeline is preposterous. It's, it, the, right rea the reaction was Seymour Hersh when he burst out laughing and heard about this. Nobody other than German info babes who are paid to do it take this seriously. The narrative is failing. It's failing because the war in the Ukraine is failing. They had to lie about that, and now it's not turning out the way they expected. So once upon a time, truth was the opinion of the powerful. Uh, in the 1960s, let's say, when the New York Times started promoting the Holocaust narrative, now that story is blowing up in their faces. So by a classic example of what I'm talking about, uh, Jill Biden, and to celebrate the International uh, Women's Day, gave the Woman of the Year Award to a man, a man from Argentina who is now pretending to be a woman. This is the narrative in a nutshell. Truth is the opinion of the powerful. That's what these people believe. They are drunk with their own power. They're staggering around like Joe Biden, who looks as if he's drunk half the time, when it's probably just dementia, uh, staggering around, convinced of uh, the omnipotence of their narrative and their ability to control everything, just at the same time that everything is unraveling around them, disintegrating before their eyes. That's exact, that Jill Biden incident of giving Woman of the Year Award to a man because we now are supporting people who claim that, they can, they can, that men can be women and women can be men is the classic example of truth being the opinion of the powerful. No sense whatsoever that when she goes over to this guy, to he's, he's towering over her. He looks like a guy, like what's that dude with that wearing a dress with the long blonde hair? Why is he hugging uh, Jill Biden? Oh, she just gave him an award. We're not supposed to notice that because truth is the opinion of the powerful, except when it stops being the opinion of the powerful. And I'm saying it's stopping now. It's going to stop at Bakhmut which is the city in the Ukraine that is now completely surrounded by Russian troops. This is a test. The war in the Ukraine is a test of whether truth is the opinion of the powerful because the propaganda ministry has been working overtime to convince us that Ukraine is winning the war. If they say Ukraine is winning the war, then it's true because they said it just every bit as much as when Jill Biden says that man is a woman. It's true because she said it no matter what you think. Well, this is changing now because uh, in order for Merrick Garland to have his war crimes tribunal, uh, the Ukraine is going to have to win that war and they are not going to win that war. It's not going to happen. And so we are sitting here wandering, watching uh, this narrative unravel around us. Now, that's that's good news. That's good news. Now, there's going to be turmoil 
of course there's going to be turmoil. Whenever something ceases to be, it's like there's a vacuum and the, the waves rush in and it seems as if the world is coming to an end. Uh, but God is in charge of human history. And we know that because we wouldn't be here if he weren't, because the lunatics and the madmen and the criminals would have destroyed civilization long before we ever came into existence. So, one more indication that truth may not be the opinion of the powerful is that Jordan Peterson is now attacking the Pope, uh, beleaguered as he is, okay? The Pope tweeted, uh, hashtag social justice demands that we fight against the causes of poverty, inequality, and the lack of labor, land, and lodging against those who deny social and labor rights and against the culture that leads to taking away the dignity of others. So it's a little bit, little bit vague, okay, but in general, uh, it's defending uh, labor. Uh, one of the few people left in the world who will defend the rights of the working man, uh, the rights of people who are genuinely marginalized as opposed to the people who claim to be marginalized, and at this point, Professor Peterson jumps in. So fortunately, once again, uh, Professor Peterson has taken time out of his busy schedule to come to South Bend and he's here with us in the studio today. So welcome, uh, Professor Peterson. Hello, Dr. Jones. Coming all the way from Canada. Good maple season this year. Well, glad to see you here. I'm glad they let you into the country. Oh. Uh, but you, here, would you mind telling us what you said? Re read us what you said about the uh, the Pope, your response to the Pope. Well, my response to the Pope was, <clears throat> there is nothing Christian about hashtag social justice. Redemptive salvation is a matter of the individual soul. Oh, oh. oh. well, I, I, I hate to say this, but you, once again, you're struggling with category problems here. Because uh, you're talking as if there is some type of fundamental dichotomy between social justice and the individual soul. Why is that? Do you believe in justice? Uh, I can't do it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Once again, we have the prof Professor Peterson. Okay. Professor Peterson, you... Uh, signed uh, a lucrative contract. Very with lucrative. Oh, great. Very lucrative. Correct. Da yes, da yes. With the Daily Wire. Okay. Now, I don't know how much they paid you, but I do know that uh, Stephen Crowder turned down a $50 million contract. $50 million by not signing. Now, you're much more famous than, uh, than him. Yes. So I imagine you... Uh, your contract was a, the contract you signed was for a lot more money. Oh, buckle! It was. Oh. On top of that, you have all those custom-made suits now. Yeah, you got it. So you got a lot of money. We know that. But what? Who made you uh, an expert on theology? Uh, uh, the postmodern uh, <laughs> social uh, Jung. I can't do it. I can't do it. Maybe it was Jung. Jung. Yeah, yeah it was. Smart guy. Redemptive salvation is a matter of the individual soul. What about uh, belonging to a church? What church do you belong to, Professor? Um, uh, uh, I can't do it. Oh, here we go again. 
anyway, redemption of the redemptive salvation is a matter of uh, Jesus Christ redeeming us and establishing a church which is the vehicle of salvation. Uh, which I, I, you know, your your friend Ben Shapiro uh, had uh, an encounter with Bishop Barron, uh, and the one thing that never got mentioned was uh, the term baptism. And the fact that baptism is necessary for salvation. Anyway, thanks for coming. We didn't get much out of this encounter, but it's always nice to know that you're out there, uh, Professor Peterson. No problem, Slava Ukraine. <laughs> All right, that's the rant for today. Let's have your comments. Okay. Uh, one second, guys. Let me pull up. Hello. The voice you're hearing is Mike Bajakis. I'm Dr. Jones' assistant. We are going to go to the Q&A section, questionnaire section with Dr. Jones. It's on Telegram for you people who do not know, who are new. For people on Cozy, the link should be in the description uh, for the channel. Um, uh, for people who don't know, <coughs> uh, you're going to raise your hand and I'll pick you. Um, Try to keep it to one question. Try to be roughly on subject. And uh, be respectful of people's time. And do not forget to unmute yourself. It's a every now and then problem we have here. Okay, let's go to the Telegram chat. At the EMJ live chat. Who is up next? Up first. Um, let's see. Aquarius guy. Go ahead. Hey, Dr. Jones, thank you. Two really quick questions. I followed your work for a while. I have not read any of your books. I'm sorry to stay, say, could you suggest a reading order or a place to jump in? And my second very quick question, have you considered um, doing audiobook versions of your, of your work for people who listen rather than read? And that's all. Yeah, second question. We did have a uh, contract. You can get... Uh, uh, Monsters from the Id as an audiobook. Uh, I, uh, the contract didn't work out. I, I've kept asking him for uh, an accounting of uh, payment and so on and so forth. Never got it. So uh, I discontinued uh, that, uh, that relationship. So if we find another one, we'll continue it. Uh, in terms of the order of reading the book, I would say, what, what's your interest? Uh, so, uh, Apropos of that question, I am now working on a, uh, uh, for, first of all, the Holocaust book will be out uh, this year. We're working on the index now. We're going to send it to the pr printer as soon as the index is done. Secondly, I'm working on uh, the second edition of Libido Dominandi. This, this book came out in 2000. Okay, it came out and uh, one of the classic things I did after that was talk about the uh, Israelis invading Ramallah and broadcasting pornography. That's not in that book because that happened a year after the book came out. It was a vindication of what I had said, but it came out afterwards. And so now this is included in the second edition with a whole bunch of material, basically from 2000 up to uh, today, uh, all of which vindicates the thesis. So it was a, an idea that was uh, strange to people when it first came out that sexual liberation could be a form of political control. Now it's really caught on. Now I think that the, the book is 
caught up with the generation of people who are reading it now. So that'll be out then. So my, I would say, what your what is your interest? If it's philosophy, yeah. Logos Jew, Rising, Jewish issues, barren barren metal type of stuff, Jewish revolutionary spirit, libido, that that yeah. kind of start wherever focus. you want. But they're they're all like it's economics, it's psychology, it's philosophy, it's aesthetics. Start where you you're you're most interested, and then work your way back. These things, if you want to talk about what you have here, is the protocol of the development of my mind, beginning with. Uh, the Angel and the Machine, which is my doctoral dissertation. That was my mind in 1978 when I wrote that book and how this mind has developed. I could not have written The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit until I had read, written Libido Dominandi. I could not have written Logos Rising until I had written uh, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. That's the way the mind, my mind has developed along these lines. That's the chronological order. But you can enter that trajectory any place you want. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. Next, we have uh, a Jeremiah Johnson. Go ahead. Mr. Jeremiah Johnson, don't forget to unmute. Jeremiah, going once. Going twice. All right, going to the next. Um, I'm uh, Jilla. Let's see, Jilla and Sari. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for catching me because I see other people who are in line ahead of me. But this is wonderful that uh, you allowed me to speak. Um, hello, Dr. Jones. Thank you so much for all you've done. You're welcome. Um, let's see. So I'm actually a um, an atheist who follows um, you and other people like yourself because of your great anti-Zionist stance, the brave stance you take for all of us. Uh, of course, I, I'm kind of considered one of the brave ones who's actually put my life in danger because I'm I'm also a very outspoken anti-Zionist. I'm of Iranian origin. I'm an attorney who's turned foreign policy analyst, and I try to speak out wherever I can. But I wanted to ask you why um, you think that in, in my line of research, I've reached the definite conclusion that both Christianity and Islam have been the uh, used by Jewish, um, by Jews, by Judaism itself. They are like outgrowths of it. Um, but because of the fact that the belief system gets ingrained in one and, and one invests one's life in it and generation after generation we get used to religion and other ideologies, um, I think the followers of Christianity and Islam just cannot wake up to the idea that they're being used by uh, Jews or are really in service to Judaism and ultimately the bankers. Uh, I wanted to get your perspective on whether you find part of this true or how you separate yourself from the Christians that you do see are being used by uh, the Jewish system. Okay, thank you for that question. Can, can I ask you a question before I continue? Were, were, you, were you born in Iran or were you born over here? I was born in Iran and as a result of the 1979 revolution, our family um, left Iran and I was about 12 years old when okay. we did. I'm 55 now. Okay, good, good. Because I've, I, my experience with the 
uh, Iranian uh, diaspora is basically that when, when the Iranians leave Iran, they, they lose their faith. They become atheists. And that you, you seem to be conf confirming my, my understanding of the way that works. I've, I've met uh, 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 Iranian expatriates uh, in France. I know some people over here. The, 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 the faith, the uh, Islam cannot survive that journey for the most part. The only way it survives it is uh, through large communities of the type that you see in France that are coming from North Africa, where you have basically an entire ghetto of, of, uh, of Muslims living together. It, the, the, the Iranians who come over come over as experts, as I know. They're, uh, they become scientists. They come over here, and they are immediately sucked into basically the scientific materialism that is paying their bills, and, and they lose their faith, well, the faith that they had in Islam. So, uh, is so that's is, not the case for me, but no, I, I can answer that. But you go ahead and just yeah, I'll, no, I'll I, no. But obviously, <laughs> obviously, if you're 12 years old, that doesn't that doesn't apply. I just asked that for my, for my own information because I've become very interested in Iran uh, because this is the 10th anniversary of my first trip there. Uh, thanks to Nader Talabzadeh, who organized a lot of people to come over there. People who would never would have never come together. Uh, if it weren't for Nader, uh, uh, because of his experience living in the United States and so on and so forth. So if you're uh, asking me, uh, it, do certain groups tend to colonize uh, religions? Uh, let's say Christianity. Uh, I, I, the temptation is always there, okay? There, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I'm saying that Protestant groups are easier to take over because they're smaller, uh, they're not universal. They were already state churches to begin with. And so the problem, the main problem you have now with the, the mainline Protestant churches that are the direct descendants of the Reformation is that they are drying up. They disappeared. They succumbed to the sexual revolution of the 1960s, which meant for the most part they uh, started using birth control. And at that point, uh, they went out of existence because if you don't have children, you go out of existence. The Catholic Church is different in this regard because it's a universal church. Uh, it, obviously, I, I got into this business because I got fired as a professor at a Catholic college uh, who uh, was against abortion. Uh, I had a, a kind of identity crisis. How can you get fired by being a Catholic if you're against abortion? Because that college was a woman's college. It had been taken over by feminism. This is a perennial problem here, that you have people who have the, the faith, they have this gospel that's been handed down to them from generations, and they realize it doesn't fit with the contemporary worldview, and they decided to trim the gospel to fit the, uh, the, uh, the, the current worldview, and as a result, they, they pollute the gospel and they give scandal to people. Obviously, that's the case. Does that lead to the total uh, destruction of the church? No, it doesn't. Okay? And I'm saying that what we need here is some type of dialogue. Okay? I'm talking specifically about Iran at this point. I think Iran is facing a crisis right now. Uh, the hijab crisis was the manifestation of it. The deep grammar of the hijab crisis is the fact that Iranians have stopped having children. So you have a huge demographic crisis that was precipitated by the current supreme leader who uh, allowed contraception to come into the country in 1989 and created the biggest drop in fertility in birth control history. 
That man is probably going to die soon. He's 83 years old. He's had cancer. And at that point, there's going to be a crisis. And I would like to, uh, I'm trying to mobilize some people. I'm trying to, I, I wrote a, a speech uh, in which I, I hope to give this speech in Iran because they're going to bring out my book, Libido Dominandi in Farsi. And if uh, Allah wills it, I will go there and uh, we'll do a book tour and I will give the speech. But the speech is basically trying to come to some type of understanding of what needs to happen so that this country can go forward. Because at this point, it is facing a severe crisis. It's going to have a leadership crisis because the, the supreme leader may very well be the last supreme leader. Uh, he discredited himself as an authority, as a religious authority, by bringing a, uh, approving birth control and leading to this crisis. And now there's going to have to be a reworking of uh, the, the, the situation there to allow for the complete expression of the Persian soul, which I see as half, half the time they are westernizers like the Shah, and the other time there is this Islamic reaction against the westernization. And both of them are extremes that uh, will not take Iran forward anymore. There's going to have to be some type of understanding of the golden mean between these two extremes, which is going to involve Logos in some sense or another. And that's the discussion that I've proposed, and I'm starting to get responses from people uh, that I'm going to publish in Culture Wars magazine. That's If I may make a comment in response yes. to what you said. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, um, so isn't it ironic that during the the past 44 years of an Islamic government, there have been uh, an increase in um, uh, all, all sorts of venereal diseases, drug use, things that we associate with, you know, a Western decadent society have actually appeared and increased during an Islamic rule, including what you just uh, stated, uh, 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 lower birth and introduction of contraceptives. I just want to let you know that prior to the 1979 Islamic Revolution, first of all, it wasn't actually an Islamic Revolution or a variety of uh, groups coming together that were mostly Zionist-led. It was a 1979 color revolution, really one of the first color revolutions that occurred uh, that then uh, settled in as an Islamic Revolution. And the mandating of the hair color, all of those things are plans that the Zionists had in order to Islamize Iran and, and deteriorate the quality of the, um, uh, not the secularness of the society, but actually the variety of experiences that you could have inside Iran prior to 1979. There was no lack of Islamic belief. Uh, it was a pretty free society and it was quite on its way to becoming one of the top economies of the world. But the Zionists that had been installed in 1947 in the Western Asia uh, were actually not about to accept a powerful and ever increasing powerful Iran. Well, I, the 1970s. So it's actually quite a sad story that Iran has been under the grips of the Zionists and has experienced a demise, but all credit has gone to a revolutionary spirit. Any Christians or good uh, religious people have thought that Islam is, has been good for Iran when it has not been so because the Zionists are behind it. Had it been left alone, it would have been a much more um, level playing field for all forces to, to be involved. 
Well, it wasn't left alone. And now that's, that's the problem. That's the problem everyone's facing. So there, I think that there is a lot of unhappiness about the current regime there. The question is, do you want the CIA to take it over and manage it? That's, that's I think, that they're waiting to do that. I think the hijab crisis is a good example of a mixture of both. When I, I, I was at the, uh, I gave a, a... The CIA is already in Iran. No, I know they it's are. It's the CIA I, that mandated the hijab. Well, that's something that I don't, I, I don't see that. I mean, let, let me just tell you the way I see it. I think that basically that uh, it began with uh, dissatisfaction in the CIA with Iran because the Shah was very powerful during this uh, period of the 70s because of the oil revenue. The, it, tons of money just flowed into Iran. Uh, the Shah got powerful, and I think they felt that he was too big for his britches and they were looking for a way to get rid of him. So I think it started with the CIA, and then uh, it turns. Uh, it, it, it was George H. W. Bush, who had basically managed, brought together the group of the CIA agents that were expelled by Jimmy Carter, mobilized them, and then when the revolution took place, uh, he uh, the hostage crisis took place. He he bribed uh, them, bribed the Ayatollah to uh, extend it. And because he extended it for over uh, a year, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter was not reelected. And so you had Reagan uh, basically being being elected. Anyway, this is uh, I, I, it's too We can't have this dialogue right now. I'm glad you called. If you could contact me at Jones at Culture dot com. I'd like to send you that, that speech that I've been sharing sure. with with the Iranians, both in the diaspora and and there. And I'd, I'd really like your opinion about whether this is uh, viable. Do you think this is a viable way of dealing with this issue? Anyway, but th thanks for calling. All right. Good conversation here. Let's keep going. Um, let's see. Luke. Go ahead. The floor is yours, Luke. Uh, hello. I'm, I'm very glad that you uh, just brought up that the FPLC is uh, linked to terrorism. I would like to widen the front and talk about the ADL, which censored my YouTube channel and uh, got a beef running, and uh, Chabad also being a criminal group. Um, I focus my activism against pedophilia normalization, and I'm concerned about laws being passed in Germany and in Florida, which normalizes pedophilia that's linked back to those two groups. Um, in uh, a few years ago, in 2012, a Chabad rabbi was arrested for child abuse for doing metzitzah beper, which is Hebrew for what the Jew Jerusalem Post calls oral suction. And uh, that is um, the Babylonian Talmud, section Shals 133a and 133b, mandates that any rabbi that doesn't bend down and perform oral suction of a children's penis must be relieved from duty. But that's not the real reason they do it. They're inspired by Jewish Satanism, aka Jewish mysticism, um, the, um, the Kabbalah. So uh, what I'm concerned about is in Florida, 
Uh, I had a friend who was arrested for protesting outside a Chabad Lubavitch uh, synagogue, and he was filmed by the Young Turks and everyone else talking about what rabbis do to children with their mouths. And the head of Orthodox Jewry in America, Anash.org, about their edicts for coronavirus at the start of the uh, pandemic. And they said, medicines are the pair or oral suction on children's sexual anatomy must continue during lockdown. And ironically, one of the rabbis who was famous for doing it in the Jerusalem Times died from COVID. <laughs> and they actually said, Listerine cures COVID. Um, that's their words, not mine. Listerine kills the virus was their exact words in on the document you can look up. Their, their, you know, the edicts for um, the coronavirus. So they said, because Listerine uh, cures the coronavirus, we don't have to socially distance okay. our rabbi's okay. lips. All right. So, so, yeah, you know uh, what? This is, do you have a question, though? I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, my question, my, my, my question is, are you concerned about the Florida penal code being, uh, criminal code being amended to say that... Um, uh, there's an exemption for medical procedures for doing sex acts with children. and But I have found another law which says um, that all people who do uh, medical procedures on children in Florida must be registered with the medical authorities and um, submit paperwork to the Florida Department of Health. So this is an avenue to expel um, the Chabad Lubavitch and expose the ADL protecting a, a cult with a doctrine of pedophilia. Is okay, that, now is, for, is that, for, my question is, is that a good source of activism to focus on? First of all, I, this is the first time I've heard that, so I'm not familiar with this. I'd have to check in to see what, what the law is. I am concerned about Florida because they're now... Uh, uh, the law I've heard about that they're proposing is to uh, make uh, uh, hate crime, make uh, criticism, anti-Semitism a hate crime. This uh, is uh, not going to fly the, uh, because it, it contradicts the First Amendment. I don't know why uh, Ron DeSantis would be involved in something like this other than to tell the world that he's controlled by the Jews every, much, every bit as much as uh, Donald Trump was. If you're asking me about the ADL's involvement in something like this, uh, we had uh, here in South Bend the Drag Queen Story Hour. The um, Proud Boys showed up. Uh, they didn't do anything. They just showed up. And because they showed up, everybody got so upset that the whole thing was sort of canceled. It didn't happen. Uh, and that at that point, they turned to a local authority for comment. It was the ADL. The ADL goes on uh, local TV here and defends Drag Queen Story Hour. This is the type of uh, behavior uh, that uh, needs to be uh, explained. Uh, because as soon as you uh, hold uh, some Jewish group responsible for something like this, the ADL comes in and accuses you of being an anti-Semite. This is the fundamental. So I agree with you in this regard that the ADL should be treated like the SPLC as a domestic terrorist organization because they're constantly interfering with the law. Uh, another example of the ADL in Florida was basically uh, um, Mr. Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer uh, for his first case, a man by the name of Krisner, 
uh, got him basically off with a slap on the wrist for that whole child trafficking operation, blackmail operation. After he did that, he was given an award by the ADL, uh, the some type of uh, f- uh, freedom award for lawyers or something like that. This is classic ADL behavior. So not only do they attack anyone who has criticism, uh, crit- dares to criticize the Jews, whenever uh, a Jew is arrested, they jump in and ma- ensure that they don't get a fair trial. Which brings us back again to Merrick Garland, where we started off, and the whole idea of Jewish law enforcement, which it cert- looks right now as if it's becoming a contradiction in terms. Anyway, thank you for your comment. Next, we have Lobster to you. Go ahead. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Good evening, Dr. Jones. So um, I recently asked my priest about uh, sort of Jews and blood libel in particular, and he gave these answers like, oh, but there are, you know, big brothers in the faith and they're good friends and, you know, the usual stuff. So what do you think I should do? Should I try to maybe like, I don't know, quote unquote, red pill, red pill him on the Jews or what do you think? Well, the, uh, the son of the rabbi of Israel, Tof, uh, wrote a book called Pasca de, Sang- Pasca de Sangue, which is about the, uh, the, the blood libel, and said basically that it's true. Uh, he gave the research. There was such outrage, and the Jewish uh, people put, uh, put, some, put up such a fuss over that thing, that the, this guy backed down. Uh, back down and condemned his own book because the Jews threatened to expel him from the synagogue if he didn't uh, give him the treatment, the same treatment that Spinoza got uh, from the synagogue in, in Amsterdam. So if I were you and you wanted, I wanted to pursue this question, that's what, I, that's what I would bring up with your priest. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Next, we have, let's see, Blue, f- where is it? There it is, Blue, Blue Frog. Blue Fog, go ahead. Hello, Dr. Jones. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Well, it's an honor to talk to you. Um, I had a quick question. So uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the show how uh, uh, now there's the story in the New York Times that apparently Ukraine is the one who blew up the Nord Stream 2, which is obviously preposterous. But it's, it seems interesting uh, that there's this kind of... Uh, double game being played by the U.S. On one hand, they have the CIA and the New York Times publishing stories about how, oh, the Ukraine's actually trying to almost like sabotage relationships between U.S. and their uh, and um, our allies. And on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, members of, of the U.S. government visiting Ukraine and promising more money. So I was just wondering, like, if you could give thoughts on on why they're playing this uh, this kind of game and and what's the uh, what's the intended outcome? Well, there there may be the the thought that occurred to me after this preposterous story about the Ukrainians blowing up the pipeline after that came out, it occurred to me. Well, maybe they're trying to find uh, a, an exit strategy. Maybe maybe this is uh, preliminary to saying, well, maybe we shouldn't support the Ukraine. They blew up the pipeline. They did this. Maybe right. this is what they're trying to do because they're going to have to find a way out. 
They have painted themselves into a corner. There's absolutely no question. The media have been lying to us from day one that the Ukrainians are winning the war. And we had, you know, the ghost of Kiev shooting down 27 planes and uh, grandmas in yoga pants uh, stopping tanks. It's all turned out to be lies and propaganda. Well, how do you how do you get out of that? That's, I think, the biggest, that's the biggest issue right now, especially now. It looks as if China's taking the initiative. From what I've heard, uh, China, Xi is going to show up in Russia with his peace proposal on uh, uh, this, this coming week and try. He's already uh, basically resolved uh, a conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Xi needs Ukraine for the one belt, one road rail connection between Shanghai and Rotterdam. He needs that. They've put a huge investment there. In many ways, the, the war, not in many ways, I'd say primarily the war in the Ukraine has one fundamental purpose, and that is to uh, disrupt uh, cooperation among the states of the Eurasian landmass. The first one, the most uh, dangerous one, was the connection between Germany and Russia. Okay, we, they blew up the pipeline. The United States blew up the pipeline. Nobody in his right mind believes anyone else did it uh, to disrupt this connection. This is the connection that led Winston Churchill to declare war, World War I and continue it with World War II. This is a fundamental principle of the Anglo-American uh, empire, uh, uh, the Mackinder thesis. The Chinese need that a peaceful resolution so that the trains can pass through the Ukraine. Uh, they, uh, the United States thought it was going to have a quick victory. And now they are facing the reality that Bakhmut is fallen. It's surrounded. Those whatever 10,000, 12,000 troops in there, uh, there are now faced with the choice of being uh, annihilated or surrendering to the Russians. Zelensky, uh, the guy who's... Uh, uh, the guy who's the Secretary of Defense is saying, oh, well, it's not really significant. Uh, Zelensky is telling the truth, I think, when he says if Bakhmut falls, the Russians go straight to the Dnieper and that will they, are, they will have accomplished their mission. All of this is revolving around this point. And the United States, when, when you have this difficulty, the, the, the coalition starts to fragment. And then you've got people fighting each other, factions within, like the CIA, fighting each other. Uh, there's no unanimity now uh, because failure is imminent uh, on, over the horizon, and people want to point the finger at someone else and absolve themselves for responsibility for that failure. That's the way I see it happening now. All right. Thank you very much. That's very insightful. You're, you're welcome. Okay. We'll do, do one more and then hit the uh, questions in the chat. Okay. And that's for uh, for you guys. Cozy, start start putting in some questions, and uh, we'll get to this soon. All right. Next final call in, James Ross Rossiter Rossiter I'm not gonna try. James, all yours. Hey there. Rossiter. James Rossiter. No. Going once. Don't forget to unmute. Can you guys hear me? There we are. Yeah. Hello. Hey, I'm a massive fan. Hey, massive fan uh, from New Zealand. Um, kind of my only question would be, what's your thoughts on Nicholas Fuentes and what's he doing at the moment? I think he's becoming more Catholic. That's the sense I get. 
He's headed in that direction. I met with him years ago. Uh, uh, back then, I think he was more white than he was Catholic. Now I think he's more Catholic. And I think that's uh, going in a good direction. So, you know, good, good for him. Yeah, I really agree with that too. All the best and uh, God bless. Thank you. All right. Let's hit the questions from the chat. Usually how I do this is uh, I kind of, uh, I'll read a couple from Telegram and then let the people in Cozy kind of make their list and I'll jump over to Cozy. So make, make sure to at me, guys, in the, the Cozy chat. I think it's at Dr. E. Michael Jones. Um, and uh, we'll get to you guys uh, shortly. All right. Telegram. I saw a good question here. Let's see. Uh, from Carlos on Telegram. Question. Dr. Jones, what are your thoughts on music in the Catholic Church nowadays? In particular, quote, youth mass or worship music? Yeah, this is a good question because I'm, I'm going over the uh, second edition of the of, uh, Libido Dominandi. I came across the article that I've written on Rembrandt Weekland, uh, the former Archbishop of Milwaukee. Uh, uh, he's dead now. Uh, he had to leave... Uh, out of a, because of a scandal, uh, he was uh, basically caught paying uh, blackmail payments to a homosexual boyfriend of his, uh, wrecked his uh, episcopate, but not before he could uh, wreck Milwaukee. Uh, he was famous for blowing up the cathedral, literally, not not a, not metaphorically, literally with dynamite blowing up this beautiful uh marble baldacchino at the, at the cathedral. Why did he do that? Well, what came out was basically he was a homosexual. Now, what we're, we're taught that uh, there's no difference between homosexuals and heterosexuals. Uh, that is not true. That is not true. And uh, if you want the full story, read uh, Homosexual as Subversive. It's in this, it's the second chapter in uh, Degenerate Monitors. I wrote that 30 years ago. So I was ahead of my times in that regard. But what, what is his relevance here? Rembert Weakland uh, studied at Juilliard, and he was basically in charge of the, implement, the music, implementation, Im, implementation of music for liturgy after Vatican II. And so in this article that I wrote a couple years ago, it's going to be in the second edition, we have this whole nexus here of why would a... Why would homosexuality have some type of bearing on Vatican II, on the implementation of Vatican II? Well, because you have this homosexual alienation from reality. You have this homosexual uh, narcissism that wants to put uh, himself in this limelight. And that's precisely the type of um, music you got after Vatican II. I'm talking about, this is not my phrase. This is the, a direct quote from the people who are doing it, the Hootenanny Mass. Hootenanny was a TV show. It was where people get together and sing folk music and so on and so forth. TV show in the 60s. That's the, that's the type of thing that was being propagated. And I'm saying it was a function of Rembrandt Weakland's homosexual narcissism. And I'm saying it had huge impact because if there's one thing that sort of puts you in the proper frame of mind when you go to Mass... Aside from the architecture, that beauty there puts you in the proper frame of mind. If you're in a bunker or some type of Bauhaus uh, Vohn machine, you're not going to feel that way. But the other thing is music. If the music, there is such a thing as uh, musica sacra, sacred music. It's not 
the same as pop music. And if you start importing pop music into the liturgy, as happened during the hootenanny masses of the 1960s, you're going to have a catastrophic effect on the celebration of the mass. And that is precisely what happened. The crucial text here is Pius X's motu proprio on sacred music. Uh, Tra Solicitudine, I think that's the name of it. Anyway, you can find it. It is a brilliant piece of uh, musical analysis, uh, music criticism, in which uh, Pius X set the proper uh, per, uh, parameters for the type of music you need to have uh, in uh, liturgical worship. So he was an Italian. As an Italian, he loved Italian opera, but he said, look, I love opera, but it's not appropriate for the celebration of the Mass. Because it, 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 nor are these elaborate masses by people like Mozart, Beethoven, and so on and so forth. They're great works of art, uh, and, uh, Bach as well. But they are so great that they distract you from the purpose of the Mass, which is to concentrate on Christ and not on the Mass. If you have, if, if you have a melody that you recognize from someplace else, that's not good either because it's going to distract you from the mass. The whole point of music is it has to be uh, appropriate, a, so, a, a, so, a solemn, uh, appropriate response to the sacrifice of the mass. Okay, and all of these other things uh, do lead you in the other direction. One of the things he said was uh, rhythm, drums are inappropriate. Uh, if you find the lower part of your body uh, moving rhythmically, you're not listening to sacred music. Uh, this occurred to me when I was at uh, Steubenville. They were having one of their charismatic masses there, and there's the woman in front of me. She's got her hands raised up, and she's shaking her butt uh, to the music. That's not appropriate music. If the lower part of your body is shaken back and forth, it's not uh, sacred music. The, cast, the classic example of sacred music, according to Pius X, uh, was Palestrina. Palestrina was to music what uh, Thomas Aquinas was to Catholic theology. So I understand your point. I'm trying to steer you in the right direction, and I'm saying that all of the burden that has been placed on the Latin Mass uh, was created because of the failure of liturgical music, and liturgical music failed because Rembert Weakland was a homosexual, and he never should have been put in charge of this type of uh, renovation. From Cozy, Codcalf asks, if the U.S. falls, how will Western Europe be affected? If Europe falls? If, if the U.S. falls, how will Western Europe be affected? They will be liberated. Because the main, uh, the main control mechanism of Western Europe is NATO. Uh, the United States, one of the victors in World War II, imposed that uh, alliance on the people of Europe. And at a certain point, when there was a Soviet Union that was may uh, be sending its tanks through the Fulda Gap, it seemed like a good idea. NATO should have been abolished in 1989 or 1991 when the Soviet Union fell apart. They should have done it then. They should have prepared for peace, but instead they used it as a way of extending it. So uh, ever eastward to the point where you have the Ukraine, the situation in the Ukraine, uh, the, the world is on the brink of World War III. That's all because, NATO, because of NATO, 
because of NATO's control of Europe. And now NATO is telling people like the Germans to deplete their own arsenal, uh, make themselves helpless uh, by sending the, their leopard tanks to the Ukraine where they will be blown up and destroyed and they will be defenseless and that, that much more dependent on America and the American military industrial complex. So uh, once NATO disappears, there will be a big cheer uh, coming up from all of the people of Western Europe that this tyrant uh, has has gone away and let them to be uh, free to be themselves. From uh, White Pride on Cozy asks, why don't you criticize the Shabbat Jews of Russia and Putin? Don't, don't you? Don't you do you criticize them? I mean, it's, if, uh, the Jews. And I, I have talked. I have talked about uh, Putin uh, coming to power after Boris Yeltsin and Jeffrey Sachs basically created the, the Jewish oligarchs. Um. Once, once Putin came to power, he gave the Jewish oligarchs the choice of it's my way or the highway. Some of them left and they became the opposition. Some of them stayed and they decided that they're going to go along with this type of thing. I'm not denying that they're there. I'm saying that the tail does not wag the dog uh, in Russia in the way that the tail wags the dog in America. There you are. From American Boy on Cozy asks, what's your thoughts on Engelbert Dolphus? I have very few thoughts. He was the, uh, he was the Catholic uh, Prime Minister of Austria, uh, and I don't know enough about uh, him to have an opinion. From Yabble Dabble on Cozy, in your opinion, Dr. Jones, did English music die because of the Reformation? Why did poetry not die there? Um, no, English music died, according to Rafe von Williams, uh, when uh, they put German kings on the throne. So it died because of Handel. Uh, George brought Handel over. Handel was such a, a tremendous composer that he basically put every English effort in the shade. And according to Rayfon Williams, at this point, the English got this inferiority complex when it came to music. Uh, and so they uh, felt that in order to do music, they had to pretend that they were Germans and that wrecked uh, their ability to have uh, other music. There is a deeper cause, I think, that you could say that goes back to the Reformation, which uh, basically is that the English had a very ambivalent relationship to their own past because of the Reformation, because of the theft of church property. So I was at Bolton Abbey in England. You go in, when you enter the Abbey, there's a sign that says mass has been celebrated here since 1237, something like that. You go in and there's a brick wall, uh, uh, maybe a brick wall, stone wall, separating the uh, nave from the sacristy in a kind of mute testimony to the fact that no it's not the mass the mass ended when the reformation came into power it's no longer a valid mass uh, the sacraments are not valid uh, and they can't uh, address this issue the classic example again is uh, Edmund Burke the father of uh, conservatism both English and American conservatism which is basically an Anglo idea to begin with and uh, Mary Wollstonecraft the feminist revolutionary said well if you're interested in, tra in tradition do you want to go back to the time when 
Englishmen worship bread as God, in other words, to Catholic England? And the answer was, of course, no. And so that undermined their own conservatism. It undermined their commitment to tradition because it only went back to the glorious revolution. So I think if you put these things together, you have uh, some understanding of why uh, English music lacks the vitality of, say, German music, Italian opera, Russian music, and so on and so forth. Now, in terms of poetry, why are the English, why is poetry good and the other thing, uh, uh, and, and not uh, uh, music? Good question. Good question. It may have to do, uh, again, with the Reformation. It may have to do with the fact if you if you cut off the Eucharistic part of the service, all you have is the word. And if all you have is the word, you better be a good preacher. And so uh, what you have here is an emphasis on language and liturgy that could would flow from the Lutheran principle of sola scriptura, where you have to read and you're reading the King James Version, and you're reading Shakespeare, and suddenly you have this rich resource of language at your disposal, and it feeds on itself, and you've got a huge, I, I think, I'm not, I hope I'm not mistaken here, but I think the English were the, the, had the most literacy, the highest literacy rate of any place in Europe at this time. May have been because of what I said about the Reformation, but it is what it is, and so they valued uh, the they valued beauty in the English language. Uh, and they, they would uh, honor a man like Samuel Taylor Coleridge in spite of all his faults. And he had lots of faults, one of them being a junkie, a drug addict. Uh, but they honored him nonetheless, uh, honored their poets because they kept, uh, they preserved the language. In this sense, it reminds me of Iran. Uh, but... Uh, as one example, uh, the day before uh, Wolf uh, attacked Quebec, he read uh, to his uh, soldiers Gray's Elegy in a Country church, court, uh, Churchyard. Elegy in a Country Churchyard as the epitome of what they believed as Englishmen. Uh, it, 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 is, it is what it is. Next from Post No Bills, question, do you believe the elites will expand the war in Ukraine to other surrounding nations? Do I believe who will expand the war? Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, the headphones. You, you, you oh, know. I don't need that. Okay, yeah, yeah, so, say so it again. I'll, I'll, Sorry. Hop here. I'll hop here. From Post No Bills, uh, Dr. Jones, do you believe the elites will expand oh, the, the war in Ukraine to other surrounding nations? Yeah, there's, this, is, this is the struggle that's going on right now. So are, the, uh, are, they going to, uh, are they going to drive the car off the cliff? Or are the, the uh, adults in the room going to emerge and say, no, we can't do it? I think it's a hopeless situation militarily. Uh, the only uh, way forward, I think, would be the deployment of nuclear weapons. And I think... Uh, the fact that they're talking about this uh, gives you some type of uh, insight into the depth of depravity and insanity that the people in charge are manifesting at this moment. So it's it's possible, but I think that's the only that's the only way forward. I think that what we have now. I just did a, a podcast with a Poland a guy from Poland who's telling me that there's a peace movement forming now in Poland. The poles are getting disgusted with the fact that there are 20,000 Poles in Ukrainian uniforms 
who are now going to be thrown into the meat grinder at Bakhmud and die unnecessarily because they cannot save that city. So I think at a moment like this, you have to pray for peace and pray that someone will uh, arrive at the, see the situation as impossible and not pursue it to the self-destruction of the United States. Now, we have a tradition here. Uh, if you want to know what this tradition is, uh, read Moby Dick uh, and, and think about Captain Ahab and his desire for vengeance against the whale. Uh, and threatening the entire ship. The, the entire ship goes down because he wants to get some type of vengeance on the whale because it bit off his leg. That is an American tradition. Uh, Melville, I think, traced it to, to Calvinism. But uh, that's a serious problem. That's a serious problem, that you're so committed to this ideology that you're willing to risk all, uh, all of civilization. Uh, and if you can't do it, if we can't have it our way, we'll, we'll blow everything else up. Uh, Dr. Jones, it's 6.08. Want to keep going or? Yeah, let's do a few more questions. A few more questions. All right. From The Cheddaring, uh, E. Michael Jones, what is Dr. What is Dr. Jones's take on the Pope's criticism of Japan's strict refugee and migrant policy? The Pope uh, and the Church have to come to some type of fundamental understanding that if a country doesn't have borders, it's not a country. Okay, that's a fundamental fact of life. You have to establish borders. You have to take control over your borders. If you don't have control over your borders, what is happening is an invasion of your country. And that's why you have armed forces to prevent an invasion. Now, the invasion now is being orchestrated by all of the usual forces. Uh, the Jews are heavily involved in this m migration, this weaponized migration into Europe because they want to destroy those cultures. We experienced this in the 60s internal migration with the, the migration of blacks uh, in the South, from the South up into the uh, Catholic ethnic communities of the northern cities, which I describe in this slaughter of cities. So uh, if you want to talk about Japan, then you're going to have to talk about these, these issues. You're going to talk about fundamental principles. Okay, now Japan is an island. Islands always are insular in some sense or other. The Japanese have had this insular culture for a long time. The United States opened Japan up. They, the, the missionaries had trouble dealing with this. Uh, the in, initial successes were all, uh, by the Jesuits were all overturned by uh, a, a xenophobic uh, operation that basically said anyone who became Christian uh, was not truly Japanese. Now, it would be great if it worked, but it's not working. Okay, and Japan now is not faced with an invasion. It's faced with a demographic crisis that is probably one of the worst in the country, in the world, I mean. So how do you deal with that? If you guys could have solved it, you would have solved it. But there's something fundamentally wrong. And uh, uh, Japan is going to have to have the same type of dialogue that I'm hoping to uh, start in Iran uh, for the same reason, because demographic collapse is right over the horizon. And once the, the, you don't have children anymore, uh, you cease to exist. And someone's going to take over your country, whether you like it or not. So what do you do about that? I said, I tweeted something, uh, import Filipinos and convert to Catholicism. One way or the other, you're going to have to deal with this, this issue. Why do I say Catholicism? I, my, my Iranian friends 
say that, you know, it's just typical Catholic. You're always stuck on things like the Latin mass and so on and so forth. No, it's because there is a bigger issue here and it's a spiritual issue. People stop having children because they don't have faith in the future. They don't have faith in the future because they've been fed a basically materialistic ideology that says there is no future. If by future you mean some plan by God for his, the fulfillment of his word or going to heaven or uh, any of those other things associated uh, for which we need faith. You need faith to deal with the future because you no one can see the future. You can, under, you can understand the past, but you can't change it. And you can change the future, but you can't know it. And so because you don't have faith, people turn inward. They do not have children, and your, your society collapses. This is a worldwide spiritual crisis. It's not just Japan. It's not just Iran. It's not just Europe. It's worldwide right now. Materialism, there was an out, an uprising against materialism in 1979. I'm talking about the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, and I'm talking about Pope John Paul II in Poland. And 10 years later, it collapsed. It t went in the wrong direction. Instead of abolishing NATO, uh, the U.S. pushed it forward to the east till we have World War III now. Instead of ending the revolution when the Ayatollah Khomeini died, the supreme leader died, decided to extend it on forever, and you can't have a revolution going on forever, introduced birth control, and now it's not a hopeless situation, but it's a serious situation, and people are going to have to deal with it as it exists right now. I'm talking about Japan, talking about Iran, talking about Europe, which had the patrimony of the Catholic faith and abandoned it in favor of some type of sexual materialism. These have all failed, and it's time to get back to the, the spiritual source of the solution to this problem. Uh, from Cozy, uh, Jesus fixes four skins. I am a Jewish convert to the RCC. How can I rehabilitate the ethnic identity that I had as a Jew? Yeah, that's a really good question. Wow. Okay, because now we're getting to the heart of what do you mean by ethnic identity? Now, the reason I wrote uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit is to what was the identity of the Jew? The identity of the Jew is rejection of Logos and rejection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, obviously, you've rejected that rejection. So congratulations. You're on your way. Okay. But what do you mean by ethnic identity? It's going to be constantly mixed together. Okay. So did you speak Yiddish? Did you eat bagels? You like locks and bagels. Uh, this is that's part of your the way you grew up. You can't change that. I got a friend in England. I'm saying, you know, he he can tend to go in the opposite direction. He becomes so depressed about his heritage that he, he just clams up and doesn't want to do anything. That's one way. That's not that's not. You are who you are. You were raised in a certain way. Your parents raised you. If you're going against them, they're still your parents. You have that heritage. You can't deny it. There's no point in denying it. On the other hand, if you think you can come in to the Catholic Church and retain Jewish privilege, uh, you're mistaken because you ha that's a bad habit. And when you convert, you have to give up your bad habits. And this Jew Jewish privilege, this Jewish superiority complex is something that you have to give up because you're just, you know, welcome to the club. You're just like the rest of us. There is no sacred DNA in the Catholic Church. 
Now, why do I'm not accusing you of this, but I'm saying there are other people who have precipitated what I'm calling the converso crisis, the neo-converso crisis. I'm talking about people like Dawn Goldstein and uh, Rebecca Bratton Weiss. Uh, why am I complaining here? Because these people, they come into the church. The water of baptism is, isn't even dry on their foreheads. And they're accusing fellow Catholics of being anti-Semites. The, one of the worst habits that Jews have is accusing other people of being anti-Semites as a way of deflecting attention from their own sins and faults. This is what I just said about Steven Spielberg. He's the richest, power, most powerful guy in America, and he's claiming about anti-Semitism when what he should be saying is, how does Jewish behavior lead to animus against Jews? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying, I'm saying that this is a danger right now. Okay, my good uh, friend, uh, Mark Druggen, I was hanging. These were all Jewish hippies who converted to Catholicism, became third order Dominicans uh, after their hippie days in California. They're in Kentucky. Father Kleiber is a Jew, the priest, uh, a converted Jew. And they're talking about the Association of Hebrew Catholics, David Moss's group. And they're saying, no, no, this is not right. We don't have that right. We are Catholics now. We don't have this Jewish identity anymore. Okay, and certainly not a liturgical Jewish identity. Okay, I, I, I remember what I said about, you know, eating lox and bagels. Uh, and then suddenly uh, Mark is associated with a group that is now promoting exactly that. So at this point, I'm involved now. That toy's way back when I wasn't interested in Jews. I, I was kind of listening one ear and was going in one ear and out the other. Now I'm writing the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And I say to Mark, uh, would you invite me to your conference? And he says, no, we only want Jews to speak. I said, Mark, wait a minute. You're not a Jew. You gave up that identity when you got baptized. If you go to Israel, the one thing they will say, you can't be a Jew and be baptized. That's a contradiction in terms. So what are you talking about? Your DNA? Are we back with Hitler now? The, Hitler, the Hitler's definition of a Jew, that it's bad DNA? Uh, it was a moment of, of, of uh, a painful moment, certainly for me, because at this point, I suddenly realized, what are you trying to do here? There's part of your Jewish identity that you have to leave at the door, okay, because you have rejected the rejection of Logos, okay, which is the real Jewish identity. You've rejected that. You have reconciled with Logos. So welcome to the club. But don't try to drag, smuggle in uh, Jewish privilege uh, by the back door and think that because uh, you are now, uh, you have this privileged uh, uh, situation in the church because of your DNA, and now you can pontificate to the rest, rest of us. I hope, that, I hope that clarifies things for you. We're going to run uh, an article. Paul Eisen is uh, a Jew converted in England. He's dealt a lot with this, and we're going to be running an article uh, by him in an upcoming issue of Culture Wars for more analysis of this issue. One more, Doc? Okay. All right. Um, let's see. From Kingfish AF, uh, could a government based on Catholic social teaching really work in the U.S.? Absolutely. It did work. It was working. So if you're talking about the time from Quadragesimo Anno, the 1930s, the labor crisis, all the way up 65, 
turning point, crucial turning point. Uh, you had uh, people who felt that uh, uh, labor was the source of all value and that the worker uh, should be rewarded according to Catholic principles, which was the family wage. Family wage means that the man alone, uh, through his job, should be able to support a family so that the wife can stay home and raise the children. That is the fundamental basis building block of Catholic social teaching. And it was honored in this country. It wasn't universal, but it was a, an honored principle. I remember as a kid, uh, the guy, uh, the, the union steward, who was the father of one of my boyhood friends, would have meetings with the Jesuits there and they would... Uh, talk with the union, would talk with management so that they could come up with a peaceful solution to the labor crisis. And it was working and it was destroyed. It was strangled in its cradle. Uh, one of the villains, in my humble opinion, was Ronald Reagan in this regard, the whole rise of Reagan-Thatcher, the whole rise of libertarianism. Uh, but all, more importantly, I would say feminism. In the 1970s, uh, feminists came up with this principle of equal pay for equal work, and everyone was dumbfounded. How can you argue against equal pay for equal work? Well, because you don't know the opposite, which is the family wage, which means that the father needs to earn more so that he can support a wife and children who can stay at home and be raised properly and not be raised by the state in daycare centers. So, yes, it can work. Yes, it did work. And yes, it can work again. Well, there you are. All right. Thanks again, guys. Uh, uh, EMJ Live, you guys know, is every Friday at 5 Eastern Standard Time on Telegram and Cozy. You're here, so you know, I guess. Tell your friends. Subscribe. Subscribe to Telegram. Subscribe to the BitChute. Subscribe to uh, Cozy. And if you want our magazine, it's at culturewars.com. Subscribe to that. And then uh, books are at fidelitypress.org. I do not have any... Let's see. Do I, no, no announcements. No announcements for the assistant of Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones, last word. What do you got for us? Thank you. I've enjoyed it. As always, I enjoy these discussions. This is what we have to do on a broader basis. I hope the, uh, the Iranian lady who talked to me uh, will contact me at jones at culturewars.com so I can send her this this uh, proposal that I'm proposing to the Iranians. I hope she'll take part in that discussion. But thank you all for being here. We'll see you next week. See you next week, guys. God bless.